This is Histories and Mysteries. I'm Ashley. I'm Jessica. And I'm Rochelle. And on this week's episode, Ashley is going to be talking about the murder of Zelfia Lowry. And I am going to be talking about John Dillinger, which I think I promised to do like five weeks ago. (laughs) Well, we finally got there. (laughs) Yeah, kept pushing it off, but here we are. And I apologize if I sound all gross, but I have strep throat, so I'm just trying to ride the wave right now. (laughs) Awful. Yeah. So. Poor thing. At least it's not COVID. No, it's not. I got my negative (laughs) result today, so that's good. Good. So. All right. Well, I'm just going to dive right in then. I found this. It was on a episode of Cold Case which I love because yeah. <laughs> it just always interests me. Um, and this girl's name is, they pronounced it Zelfia, but it's spelled Z-I-L-P-H-A. So it kind of looks like Zelfa, but they call it Zelfia. So. Okay. Sounds like a Greek goddess. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting and kind of like cool too, like Greek and yeah, I agree. Um. So Marion, North Carolina is a small city with a little less than 8,000 people calling it home. (laughs) Its motto is where the main street meets the mountains. So one of these people who called Marion home was Zelfia Lowry. And growing up, Zelfia wrote poetry. She loved to collect unicorns. And like everybody just gushed about her, just saying how nice she was and how everybody loved her. Um, and her niece said that she was really close to Sophia. She said sometimes she loved her more than her own parents. So <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, she said she was also, uh, they said that she was also very close to her nephew, Jeremiah. People said they were almost like brother. They're almost like brother and sister. <laughs> and they hung out a lot because of that. And it's a small town, you know, so family you hang out with a lot. And one day they were parked at Jeremiah's dad's, Eddie, his girlfriend's house, when Eddie came out and told them they had to leave. As soon as they left, Eddie burnt the house to the ground. What? Yeah. And they didn't go to police. Um, they told some family, but they kept it quiet after that. You know, with it being such a small town, I'm sure they were afraid. Yeah, for sure. Then in September of 1992, a family member was driving back to Marion and saw Jeremiah's truck parked on the side of the interstate. He thought this was odd. So he checked with the boys that Jeremiah was living with at the time. And they said that Jeremiah had left to go and live with his dad. But that was the last time Jeremiah was ever seen. So. The police said at first there wasn't a lot of concern by the investigators because there was really no evidence of a crime. Um, There were rumors that he hitched a ride with a truck driver down to Texas and he was 18 years old. So they weren't really pushing it too much. I, for me, this is a case where it was kind of lackluster police effort. The case I'll do for next week has really good police. So, but this one is not so much, but But Zelfia, she knew her nephew. They were so close, like I had said. And so she knew that he would not leave town without saying goodbye to at least her or someone in the family. And she also had a weird dream that Jeremiah's dad, Eddie Pittman, had killed him, had killed Jeremiah, buried him, and put lime on top of the body. And that was the dream she had. Lime on top of the body. Very specific dream. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So Zelfia told her sister that she was going to confront Eddie and her sister pleaded with her not to because her sister was like scared of Eddie. He'd burn a fucking house down. Right. And on June 27, 1993, eight months after Jeremiah went missing, Zelfia left her job as a waitress at a local truck stop and never made it home. Oh no. So that's two people in the same family that have gone missing. Her sister filed a missing persons report and the police again thought, well, she's not missing. She just left. They said she was a free spirit and it wasn't unusual for her to be gone for two or three days at a time. But like there's two family members missing now. Doesn't that seem a little weird? Like at least something to look into, right? 
uh, um, at one point, the sister told said that the cops told her to just go do your own investigation just to like get rid of her. So she said, bet. And she did. So- <laughs> <laughs> the weirdest thing I've ever heard. I got the kid lingo, guys. Actually, it's hilarious. You're the oldest. And Jess and I are like, what the hell are you talking about? I was born in 93. (laughs) (laughs) So the sister went to Zofia's place of employment at the truck stop and started asking questions, but no one seemed to really want to answer her. And it just kind of died from there. I mean, there was nowhere to go. So flash forward to February 5th, 1994, 14 months after Jeremiah went missing and six months after Zelfia went missing. And some hunters were out, <laughs> I typed in here, hunters were out doing the hunting <laughs> and found Very some human remains. I know, right? Thanks. <laughs> out doing the hunting. And they found some human remains. There wasn't any tissue left. Um, so, it, and it didn't seem like this was any type of like burial or covering. It just looked like a body laying on the ground. They said near the bones were some clothes and some sheets and the stuff belonged to Zelfia. Oh, no. So they discovered that Zelfia had endured, endured severe trauma to the skull one investigator said that it was almost completely crushed but this was definitely the dumping ground and not the murder scene so they really wanted to try and find the murder scene so at this point a new detective comes in um he wanted to take the case he worked in another town and he said he specifically moved to this town for this case and he started to look into both families of the missing slash murdered members (laughs) He said either they were connected, the murders, or like this was a huge coincidence. So he went back and started questioning people, and he found a witness that said she he saw Zelfia get into a car with an unknown man. So the detective went to the local jail because he said that they could become quite the rumor mill. So you can usually get a lot of information from them. But he said that for some reason or another, people in the jail really wanted to insert themselves into this case. One guy said that he was with some other guys when they had taken a blonde haired girl in um, a sleeping bag out to the woods and left her. Another guy said that he was with some people that took um, a girl into the woods and never came out with her. The detective said that he heard 11 or 12 different Uh versions of this same story. So like not any help at all. But all like super sketchy versions. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like nothing real, nothing that was of help at all. So he started to interview the family and Zelfia's sisters and um, said that he thought they all said that they thought it was Jeremiah's dad, Eddie. They thought that he had killed both of them um, because they had witnessed him burning that house down. Um, and apparently they had burned that house down um, him and his girlfriend for the insurance money. So they would have lost out on a lot of money had someone told on them. So the family thought that Eddie did this, but when he visited Eddie, he denied, 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 obviously. So the detectives keep working on this area of the case for several months until February 5th, 1996. This is now two and a half years after Zelfia's murder. When Rosemary Gearings, who was Eddie's girlfriend at the time, showed up to the detective's office wanting to talk. So she is no longer with Eddie. She told detectives that she thought Eddie was going to kill her because of what she could say. Rosemary then takes detectives to this remote area of the woods, walks to a ditch, and told detectives to start digging. Sure enough, they found human bones. No. Yeah. Jeremiah's bones. So Rosemary said that Eddie and Jeremiah had gotten in a fight, and um, Eddie beat Jeremiah with a hammer. What? So remember, this is his son. So he beat him with a hammer. They then took his truck and it banded it on the interstate and buried his body and poured lime over him. What? Just like the dream that Zelfia had. Isn't that insane? That's crazy. Oh, this is like a sequel to to Murder Zelfia Dream. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, so one of the, the funny things I 
I thought for the story next week, I, there was this other detective and he said that he loves ex-girlfriends, ex-boyfriends, ex-wives, ex-husbands. He's like, because they're loyal at the time, but give it a few years. If they're not together anymore, they're completely willing to talk. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And they're always so good at just like really spilling all the juicy details. (laughs) Yep. And that's exactly what happened in this case. So the detectives went out to Eddie's house and arrested him. They said he was under arrest for the murder. And he said, whose murder? Like he had done more than one. Oh my God. <laughs> How old was his son? Um, He was 18. Oh, okay. Still awful. I know. I was just picturing him as this like young, young boy, like four or five or so. Oh, no, no. Yeah, he was 18. Like oh, you said, okay. still awful, but. Yeah. 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 Okay. So they questioned Eddie and questioned him, but he did not give away anything and he didn't, and they didn't really have any evidence connecting him to Selfie's murder. He did plead guilty to Jeremiah's murder and was convicted of manslaughter thanks to a plea deal. But because they didn't have any evidence and Eddie wasn't talking about Zelfia's murder, the case went cold for 10 years. Oh, Yeah. On July 27th, 2004, the 10-year anniversary of her death, the new detective that came in because he wanted to do this case decided to run a piece in the local paper on the murder, hoping to, like, spark something, bring it back up, you know, put it back in the news. Yeah. And it, it did. A prisoner by the name of Ricky said that a man named Ronald was involved in Zelfia's death. Apparently, several years ago, a man named Ronald had showed up with a van with a really large blood stain in it right after Zelfia's murder. So the detectives actually located this van in a local junkyard, but it had been 10 years. So the stains, like, they kind of look like they could be blood, but it was hard to tell. Yeah. And so they used phenolphthalene on the spots, and it showed that it was not blood. So there was just Aww. another dead end. Yeah. Well, apparently Ronald was friends with Zelfia's sister's son and years ago sat down with her son and told him that he knew what had happened to Zelfia. After some questioning, because they finally went to him and they're like, hey, you know, we know that you know what happened to Zelfia. Like you told someone about this. So after some questioning, Ronald said that there were two guys who lived in a mobile home near a friend of Ronald's. Apparently his friend went over there one night asking them to turn the music down. And the men acted really weird. They were like kind of only opening the door a crack and like wouldn't let him in. Um, And he said later on, they saw the same two men carrying a rolled up rug to their car. So the detectives tried to go and find that same trailer and it was still there. It was abandoned, but it was there. That's crazy. Yeah. And they ran into the landlady and she said that back around 1993, there was a man who lived there named Robin Whitehead. They searched for this Robin Whitehead, who the lady said had moved to Richmond, Virginia, and they found him working at a car dealership. He said that they had party with some girl who um, he remembered had like a strange name, but he couldn't remember what. And they're like, well, could it have been Zelfia? And he's like, yeah, that sounds right. They showed him a picture and he said, yep, that's her. He said that they were having a party. He had sex with her and then she left and he hadn't seen her since. He had no idea that she went missing or was murdered or anything along those lines. Detectives went back to the trailer, hoping to find some kind of evidence because of this um, Robin Whitehead interview went nowhere. But the trailer had been abandoned for years and it was somewhat open to the elements and the animals. So it was kind of like, you know, not doing super great. But um, they were swabbing. They were swabbing everything they could. (laughs) They were trying to find any bit of trace evidence. So one of the detectives found a little cluster of specks on the ceiling in the bathroom. And he was like, hey, kind of looks like blood. So he swabbed it and it was blood. Ooh. Yeah. But was it Zelfia's blood? One obstacle was that there was not a sample of Zelfia's DNA preserved because it wasn't really a thing back then. And being that they were from such like a small town, 
it wasn't a thing at all or anything that they were like planning on. So they decided to exhume her body to get some DNA from the bones. And the blood matched Sophia's DNA. Ba-ba-bum. I like that you make your own sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> For dramatic effect. But obviously the case wasn't strong. Um, so on April 25th, 2006, 13 years after Zelfia's murder, they bring Robin in for questioning. And this is just like a quick little conversation they had. So detective, Robin, I'm just going to ask you about the death of Zelfia Lowry. Robin, I'm in from work that evening and Bobby has this girl's phone number and he said he wanted to call her and get her to come to the party. Detective, when you say Bobby, Bobby Taylor, Robin, yes. Apparently, this Bobby Taylor had an extensive criminal record with some violent crimes. So apparently that night, Robin was having sex with Zelfia, and the detective said, and Bobby wanted his turn. Ew. Ew. Yeah. (laughs) I hate that. Why Why did they say it like that? Right. So gross. So when Zelfia is like, um, no, gross, Bobby gets pissed and slams her head on the floor several times. Robin said that he witnessed Bobby beat her to death. So Robin was then charged as an accessory to murder. The detectives hunt down Bobby and guess what? He is already in federal prison for another crime. Uh Uh-huh. But Bobby said that he remembered a blonde, some blonde hair girl coming over to his party for a trailer one night, which in itself is suspicious to me. Because if you, if nothing spectacular happened, why would you remember some random blonde chick coming to your house to party like 13 years ago, right? Yeah, really. So he said that when he had last seen her, she was alive and well. And they said, well, um, Robin said different. And as soon as they said that, Bobby shut down and the detective said Bobby I've been doing this for 25 years and Bobby said what you don't understand is that I've been doing this for 25 years (laughs) yeah (laughs) the worst line right (laughs) so they arrest him (laughs) and Before the trial, Robin came to investigators for an interview and he brought a tape. And this tape was created around the time of Zelfia's murder. And the video was almost like a tour of the trailer. It was odd. And they said they used it as like showing that it was like his guilt. Like he felt guilty of what happened there. So he was like, I don't know. It was weird. I didn't get it. But um, the lawyer said he knew what he had done was wrong and it was his guilty conscience making him make the videotape, which I don't get, but, but the jury came back in and as Bobby Taylor rose to listen to the verdict, Zelfia's sister said he looked their family in each of their eyes and smiled. Yuck. He was found guilty of first degree murder. Thank God. And sentenced to life without parole. Robin White pled guilty to accessory after the fact of murder and was given a three-year suspended sentence. And I looked it up in case you don't know what a three-year suspended sentence is, because I didn't. I don't. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's basically saying, like, usually there's, like, stipulations, like, you have to meet this, this, and this. And if you don't, then you go to jail for three years. But if you do, then you don't go to jail. So. Interesting. I wonder if we even have that. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder if you guys have that in Canada. I don't think so. Sorry, can you repeat it? Where um, if you have like, you'll usually have like stipulations with it. Like if you do this, this, and this, you don't serve your time. But if you don't do any of that, then you serve whatever time it was they gave you. Yeah, so technically like we have what are called promise to appears or we have show cause hearings. So they get conditions okay that are put on them and then if they break those conditions within a certain amount of time say like 18 months then they go back to court and then they may be charged further and then put on another gotcha stuff like that so okay we sort of have that gotcha. kind of yeah yeah so what i thought was really weird 
was that two members of the family were murdered within a few months of each other and they had nothing to do with each other come to find oh, out oh yeah wow that's isn't so that crazy that's what wild. bad luck for that family yeah. especially when those two are so close like it was a yeah. sure thing that you know they were connected yeah so that is my story on the murder of Zelfia, I guess, and Jeremiah. Yeah. Sorry, and Pitt. That was crazy. That took a wild turn. I know, yeah. right? I really thought it was going to be Eddie that killed them both, but no. Yeah. Especially the whole <laughs> lime thing was weird. Yeah. Yeah. She knew she's had that dream. Why would you pour lime on someone? It disintegrates the body. Oh, all right. Well, thank you for sharing that because I'd never heard it before. Yeah, yeah, me neither. That's a good one. Thanks. A good one. All right. So I'm going to be doing John Dillinger, and it's going to be a trip for me because I researched him about a month ago and I don't remember anything. <laughs> yeah, it's been a hot minute since you were doing research on that. Yeah. I don't know why I kept putting him off because, like, it's, it's a wild ride. But yeah, all I knew was that he was a bank robber. I didn't really know anything else about him. So it was pretty interesting and i got my resources from all that's interesting <laughs> and history.com <laughs> i feel like we should just add like in our in our tagline like histories and mysteries brought to you by all all that's interesting. Interesting. <laughs> i love it i love them <laughs> all right Sponsor us! Sponsor us! Right? All that's interesting. (laughs) So in 1903, John Dillinger was born in Indianapolis. His parents already had a 14-year-old daughter, Audrey, and John's mother died in 1907 when he was just three years old. Dillinger's father promptly married off Audrey and sent John to live with the newlyweds, as it was normal for widowed fathers to make other arrangements for their children at that time. Wait, so so if the wife dies, the kids get shipped off? I guess so. Like if for he so chooses, yeah, yeah, okay. to make That's other awful. arrangements. Yep. It's awful. Yep. After his father remarried and Audrey's family grew too large to manage, John moved back in with his father a few years later. The young Dillinger was already a handful at this point. He tormented children at school and later led a neighborhood gang that stole coal from the Pennsylvania Railroad. Oh my gosh. I know. What a little shit disturber. <laughs> And thus, Dillinger's first brush with the law began when some of the housewives to whom he sold coal turned on him and his co-conspirators, and a local judge gave him a talking to. (laughs) Naughty, naughty. (laughs) Kill of the housewives. (laughs) He didn't even receive a punishment for this crime, and he quite literally only received a talking to because the judge thought that that was all he needed to be set straight. But he was wrong. We joke about like that, but I'd be horrified to get a talking to. Yeah, I would be t- like, yeah, I would be too. Absolute anxiety there. To get yeah, but we are women that don't commit crimes. And this is true. Like I'm not stealing coal. A little bit. I that still, was like, though, like, man, I just have this intense fear that like, I did something so bad that I just like don't know that I did it and I'm gonna yeah. get trouble. I know it's always so scary talking to authority. <laughs> so when he was a teenager, he dropped out of school and he started working at a machine shop in Indianapolis where he would spend his free time drinking and shoplifting. <laughs> so what like are your hobbies? Time. Well, I drink and shoplift. <laughs> and I steal coal. Oh my goodness. His father became worried that the city was corrupting his son, so they moved to rural Mooresville, Indiana. However, this move was too late, and Dillinger was already corrupted into being a troublemaker. (laughs) While in Indiana, however, he fell in love with a woman named Frances Thornton, Thornton, but her stepfather disappeared, so their whirlwind romance came to an end. 
1923, at the age of 19, he stole a car and went on a joyride around Indianapolis. He was able to evade the police on foot, and he ran away to the Navy in order to escape prosecution. Obviously, he had some problems with authority and following rules, so after only a few months in the Navy, he deserted while his ship was docked. He eventually ended up receiving a dishonorable discharge, and so he went back home to Indiana. Upon his return to Indiana, he bounced from job to job and woman to woman. His father also joined the local clergy, and the family was becoming well-known around town. His dad was in the clergy, and then he was acting like that. (laughs) Yep. Oh, yeah. And it just gets even more fun after this. (laughs) (laughs) At the age of 20, Dillinger met a 16-year-old woman named Burl. B-E-R-Y-L. Oh, jeez. Barrel. Barrel? It's like Cheryl, but Barrel. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Barrel Hovius. (laughs) And the two married on April 12th, 1924. Even though it appeared he settled down and was turning his life around, it couldn't have been further from the truth. And he realized he wasn't going to be able to support his wife, so he turned back to crime as it was the only thing he knew he was good at. Dillinger and an associate, Ed Singleton, waited behind a church not long after his wedding day. What a screwed on your wedding day. (laughs) They knew Frank Morgan, the town's old grocery store owner, walked home the same route every night. As Dillinger later recounted, quote, When Morgan came along, I jumped out from behind the building and hit him twice on the head with a bolt, which I had wrapped up in a handkerchief. He then turned and grabbed a revolver, which I had in my hand. The gun was discharged when I jerked it away from him, the bullet entering the ground. We then ran. (laughs) The Mooresville Times wrote about this incident, and it essentially mirrored Dillinger's account with the added bit of Morgan requiring 11 stitches. Dillinger's father convinced him to plead guilty to the crime, telling him to ask for leniency for coming forward. However, the court did the opposite and threw the book at him. Yeah. (laughs) Ten years later, Indiana Governor Paul V. McNutt (laughs) lamented. (laughs) It's a horrible last name. (laughs) Um, He lamented Dillinger's harsh sentence by saying, the judge and the prosecutor took him out and assured him if he would tell certain things, they would let him off with a lighter sentence. They didn't keep their word. They gave Dillinger 10 to 20 years while his partner in crime, Edgar Singleton, got 2 to 14 years and was released at the end of two years. Wow. I mean, I don't blame him because he already had quite a record, but still, that's a big difference. Yeah, but he yeah. he's saying that this made a criminal out of John Dillinger. Oh, okay. Because of what happened at this moment in time. Yeah. Years later, Dillinger wrote his father and said, I know I have been a big disappointment to you, but I guess I did too much time. For where I went in a carefree boy, I came out bitter toward everything in general. If I had gotten off more leniently when I made my first mistake, this would never have happened. I also don't really believe that, though. Like, he had already gotten a stern talking to. He had already gotten caught doing a bunch of things. I think this was just his way to blame someone other than himself. Yeah, a nice little scapegoat. Yeah. To make matters worse, Tillinger found out during his prison physical that he had contracted gonorrhea. Gonorrhea! Gonorrhea! (laughs) (laughs) During this prison stay, he was in for nine and a half years. Wow. In 1929, however, five years into his sentence, his wife, Beryl, got a divorce as she was unable to handle being separated. Was Dillinger a criminal because of his lengthy sentence? Well, you be the judge. I already said no. I get that. He had performed a sprinkling of one-off petty crimes prior to his incarceration, 
And after nine and a half years milling with inmates in the Indiana state prison system, he instantly committed a series of high stake, high profile bank robberies. I mean, I definitely don't think that like prison helps and it teaches them how to be better criminals. But I also don't think that had he not gotten a long prison sentence, he was all of a sudden going to be like following the letter of the law, you know? There's a story from Kingston Penn, one of the like notorious inmates, Red Ryan, in 1926. And it's really similar to that where he escaped over the wall, like injured, like with a a pitchfork, like one of the uh, the chief keeper went over the wall, wrote a letter being like, essentially, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> and then the postmark on that was traceable. So like oh, within days, they tracked him down and brought him right back to uh-huh. prison. And then he was released on good behavior under the condition that he would go on a tour across Canada, like promoting the prison system and so he did but he robbed banks the entire time <laughs> he was doing that of course he did. and eventually he died in a shootout in an lcbo in sarnia oh, oh wow my gosh that's a crazy story yeah. wow well i think that what they're trying to say is that like he was just committing petty crimes and then he got this really hard penalty and went to jail and then he also was performing really high stake mm-hmm. crimes. Yeah. I think that's kind of what they were getting at. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um he became serious about studying the criminal trade after resenting society and being enraged by the severity of his sentence. And he spent most of his 20s surrounded by some of Indiana's worst bank robbers and strong arm guys learning everything he could about planning robberies and avoiding the law. Instead of acting like a loudmouth, Dylan reminded his manners and picked the brains of several notable criminals, including the likes of Harry Pierpoint, Charles Mackley, Russell Clark, and Homer Van Meter. Homer Van Meter? Your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> but then something happened. The Great Depression. Oh. It strained Indiana state prison system in the early 1930s. A doubling of the prison population exasperated funding cuts because families who had lost everything began thieving and pilfering out of desperation. Uh, a new parole board was formed in 1933 with the goal of releasing more convicts than before. Dillinger reached out to his father and sister and asked them to plead his case for early release. His family circulated a petition in his name, and it received 188 signatures. So on May 30th, 1933, 29-year-old John Dillinger was paroled. And then this is when he started doing all the bank robberies? Yep. Okay. Meanwhile, the Great Depression was still raging, and finding work of any type, even for the most determined and hardworking individuals, was nearly impossible. And as we all know, Dillinger was neither hardworking nor dedicated. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) imagine how that went. (laughs) At his parole hearing, Dillinger promised that he would work on his family's farm and steer clear of crime. But that obviously did not happen. (laughs) Yeah. Dillinger soon turned to the crime of bank robbery, which Ashley mentioned. And he had learned so much about it in prison. So he recruited a team of guys who had been recommended to him in prison. Paul Lefty Parker, William Shaw, and Shaw's associate, Noble Claycomb. And they robbed $10,000 from the new Carlisle National Bank in Ohio just a month after returning home. So that worked out real well. (laughs) (laughs) They spent the night in the bank, tying up two employees the next morning and forcing a third employee to open the safe for them. Rather than resting on that victory, which was worth about $200,000 in today's money, 2019, Dillinger and his gang moved on to Bluffton. The crew got away with less loot, only $2,000 at this bank, um, because this bank had previously been robbed and had to fire their guns Oh, sorry. And then Dillinger and his crew had to fire their guns to flee through the windows. 
and the local publication reported the bandits vanished as quickly as they came. <laughs> On September 22nd, a couple of weeks after he stole around $21,000 from a bank in Indianapolis, he was arrested by Dayton, Ohio police. According to the Dayton Daily News, he was apprehended with four pistols, $2,600 in cash, quantities of rifle and shotgun shells, detailed notes explaining the fastest ways to escape from various cities, and sacks full of carpet tacks. Um, and this was found in the boarding house where his girlfriend, Mary Longnaker, lived. Longnaker? I don't know. These names <laughs> are weird. <laughs> uh, Longnaker... Um, her landlady had tipped off the police as to his whereabouts because why wouldn't landladies just <laughs> and since he'd committed felonies previously there was no way Dillinger could avoid a prison sentence this time yeah so John Dillinger had a cryptic paper and a poorly drawn map on him at the time of his arrest in addition to the cash and guns Dillinger refused to say what it was, but it appeared to the cops to be a prison escape plot. And the plan, which was intended for eight of Dillinger's cronies, went off without a hitch. The men escaped with smuggled shotguns and rifles just days after his capture. <laughs> Three of the escapees returned to the Lima, Ohio jail on October 12th, disguised as Indiana State Police officers to repay the favor. I'm pretty sure it's Lima, Ohio, because that's where Glee set. Oh, oh. fun fact. Fun fact. <laughs> that's the only reason I know that. <laughs> <laughs> they informed the sheriff that they were on their way to take Dillinger back to an Indiana prison for violating his parole. When the sheriff demanded identity credentials, one of the men pulled out a gun, shot the sheriff, and then beat him unconscious. Because, I mean, shooting him wasn't enough, apparently. Sorry. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure when I was researching this, I started singing that song, too. <laughs> uh, the key to Dillinger's cell was immediately retrieved, and he was freed. After that, the gang returned to Indiana. The Dillinger gang had committed an interstate violation by crossing a state line while escaping this crime. This, combined with the sheriff's death, caught FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover's attention. Oh. The FBI worked with local law enforcement to apprehend the group after they robbed at least four more banks in different Midwestern states. In January of 1934, the gang stole $20,000 from a bank in Indiana and then proceeded to flee southwest. With the help from the FBI, the local authorities were informed of the gang's activities. This ended up paying off as he was finally apprehended 10 days after the robbery in Tucson, Arizona. Ooh. The Indiana State Police Chief personally took Dillinger back to Indiana to face charges where he was imprisoned in the escape-proof Crown Point Jail, or so they believed. Yeah. Dillinger is said to have constructed a phony gun out of wood and he used it to flee. <laughs> <laughs> he swiftly regrouped with his gang, which now included Babyface Nelson, the famed cop-killing psychopath. The team, now the target of a worldwide manhunt, holed up in a Minneapolis. Oh, hold up in Minneapolis. <laughs> and robbed banks as far apart as South Dakota and Iowa, all within a week. In March of 1934, Dillinger reunited with his girlfriend, Evelyn Frechette, in St. Paul, Minnesota. Frechette's landlady was also a snitch. And decided that she was going to go to the FBI with information on Dillinger. <laughs> the FBI sent a couple of agents to the apartment to check things out and were quite surprised when Dillinger burst out of the apartment with a Tommy gun on his hip and opened fire. Oh my gosh, Dillinger. Yeah, he's baddie. It's badass. Bad. <laughs> 
Luckily, the agents were prepared and they returned fire, hitting Dillinger in his leg. He fled to Mooresville with his girlfriend and holed up in the family home. After about a week of recovery, Dillinger set out with his gang towards Ohio. It's not clear what their intentions were, but it was speculated that Dillinger was after a past lawyer of his to work off an old grudge he had. Ouch. Because why not just lay low? Why to take it out on a lawyer? Come on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately, they actually ended up rear... (laughs) They actually ended up rear-ending a couple on April 7th, and their vehicle description was read over the radio, and the FBI swarmed the area only to find their empty car on the side of the road. Oh, gosh. On April 9th, Frechette went to a meeting with a potential landlord in Mooresville. Dillinger suspected something was off, so he hung back. As soon as Frechette walked into the bar, an FBI agent put her in cuffs and hauled her off, never to see Dillinger again. He attempted to save her, but that plan fell through, and it was eventually abandoned. (laughs) He's like, I tried. Sorry, babe. (laughs) Yeah. He then moved to Michigan's Upper Peninsula and Chicago. Hey, that's where I'm from. Not the Upper Peninsula, but Michigan. Nice. I was going to say, from Michigan's Upper Peninsula? No, the Lower Peninsula, but Oh, okay. Well, that would have been cooler. (laughs) Same. (laughs) That's where I'm from, except not. (laughs) Yeah. Same state, just different peninsula. Yeah. <laughs> he had changed his name to Jimmy Lawrence at this point. Hmm. By this time, he was public enemy number one, and there is a specific task force assigned to him. For several months, the FBI worked with no leads, even when they found his abandoned car in the city. Sorry, everybody with my sniffling. <laughs> Near the end of May, Dillinger paid a plastic surgeon $5,000 to alter his appearance so he could further evade authority. Oh my gosh. What? And that's a lot of wow. money back then. And it's the stupidest thing because nothing really changed. Like, literally, he just had some moles and scars removed and his cleft chin was filled in and his fingerprints were burned off. <laughs> <laughs> so it'd be one of those really. Like- yeah looks exactly like john dillinger (laughs) yeah (laughs) he even said hell i don't look any different than i did (laughs) and like you said five thousand dollars is a lot (laughs) yeah you should have changed your nose man you change your nose you change your whole face yeah or eyebrows or mouth um Oh, okay. Well, these changes were, in fact, enough to evade those that were looking for him. Um, He passed by a couple of task force members at a Cubs game, and they didn't recognize him. Okay. So, and he was also apparently, he was also apparently dating a teenage runaway turned prostitute named Polly Hamilton. And I'm not ewing the fact that she's a prostitute, I'm ewing the fact that That she's she's a teenager. Yeah. Ew. Yeah. On July 22nd, Gillinger had suspected or had suggested to Polly that they go to the Biograph Theater, which was around <laughs> the corner from their hideout. And in my TikTok, I said, I... biography? I don't know. I said something stupid. It was not Biograph. So, <laughs> um, Polly's Madame, Anna Kumpanas, or Anna Sage who was a Romanian immigrant facing deportation for running a brothel, ratted Dillinger out. There's like a lot of snitches in this story. (laughs) Anna had recognized him from the wanted FBI posters and was hoping she could cut a deal and not be deported if she shared information on him. The FBI were then able to set up surveillance in the neighborhood he was staying in. Fun fact. Anna got deported anyways. <laughs> I was going to say, I bet she, I bet she gets deported anyways. Which, like, is sad, but it's funny at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> While Polly and Dillinger were enjoying the show, the FBI squad surrounded the theater in two separate groups. 
The theater manager, being a total goon, called the Chicago police as he thought the FBI agents were robbers. Oh, my God. (laughs) So the police came and attempted to arrest the agents. Oh, my gosh. Upon the completion of the movie, Dillinger walked out with Polly and walked right past an FBI agent named Melvin Purvis. Melvin lit a cigar in order to signal the other agents of Dillinger's presence. Dillinger noticed this and looked across the street where the others were. Fun fact, Bonnie and Clyde were gunned down just two months prior to this event. Oh, geez. Um, Dillinger pulled his cold pistol out of his pocket and ran towards an alleyway. Three agents followed him and shot at him six times only four shots hitting him and only one shot being fatal still pretty good four out of six yep Uh, and um content warning um this shot was fired by agent charles winstead and this bullet entered through the back of dillinger's neck clipped his brain stem and then popped out of his face under his right eye. Oh my gosh. And it's rumored that his last words were, you got me. (laughs) 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 But that's a clean shot. Yeah. Yeah, that's like how you want it. If you want to, if you're getting shot, like that's how you want it to be shot. Yeah, Yeah. because that would have been like instant drop. Right. Like if you're getting shot dead, yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's not like you turn into a vegetable or like you're suffering. Like it's done. Exactly. You're gone. He was buried or buried in a crowd. He was buried in Crown Hill Cemetery in Indiana, and his grave marker has been needed to be replaced four times as people keep stealing bits of it. Ew. Many people continued to consider John Dillinger as a Robin Hood type character even after his death because he robbed the banks that many people blamed for the Great Depression. But like what did did he give the money to the poor? I don't think so. I I don't (laughs) think so. (laughs) So it's just like one half of Robin Hood. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just, just the Robin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Many Americans saw him as a man of the people who stole from the rich in order to give to the poor. But again, I don't really think that he gave money to the people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't see him having like a side charity. No. J. Edgar Hoover did not agree with that assessment. He famously quipped, quote, I cannot remember a single instance in which John Dillinger fancied himself a knight errant obtaining revenge upon a cruel world for past injustices. Rather, he was a cheap, boastful, selfish, tight-fisted, pug-ugly who thought only of himself. (laughs) Jeez, Hoover! (laughs) (laughs) Rough. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah. His body was put on display in a Chicago morgue and the public lined up to see his body. 30 years after his death, a showman asked Dillinger's father for his son's body. In order for his body to not be stolen, the family had his grave fortified in three feet of concrete. Oh, wow. Holy. And fun fact... Dillinger and his gang robbed at least a dozen banks and netted a total loot of around $500,000, which is roughly $7 million in modern-day currency. Wow. But his take paled in comparison to the amount of money the FBI spent trying to catch him. Oh, no. According to the Associated Press, the nascent government agency racked up a tab of some $2 million <gasps> on the manhunt. Wow. Which included the bill for several agents dedicated solely to Dillinger. Wow. Historians have since credited the hunt for John Dillinger and his eventual death at FBI hands with helping legitimize the Bureau and establish it as the nation's most famous crime unit. 
And that is my John Dillinger story. Wow, that was crazy. Cool. That was cool. Isn't that wild? Can we just talk about yeah. the guy who like asked his dad, like, can I have your son's body? It's fucking <laughs> <Right>? weird. <laughs> yeah. And like yeah. it was so many years after his death. That's so weird. It's creepy. I hate it. Um, I have some jokes. Okay. Maybe okay. I think. Oh, what's the best thing about Switzerland? Its flag has a big plus. Yeah. The flag is a big plus. <laughs> oh, the flag is a big plus. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> guys, guys, guys. I invented a new word. What? Plagiarism. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. Why do we tell actors to break a leg? Because every play has a cast. Rochelle, <laughs> <laughs> do you know where that comes from? You're a theater major. Nope, never heard of it. Oh. Break a leg? Oh, wait, broke a leg. No, I've never heard the joke. Um, Break a leg. Why did they say yeah. that? Good question. I don't know. Okay, I didn't know if you knew the like legend behind it or whatever. I probably should know the legend, but. I've yeah. heard it before. Oh, okay. Some say the term originated during Elizabethan times when instead of applause, the audience would bang their chairs on the ground. And if they liked it enough, the leg of the chair would break. Oh, okay. The most common theory refers yeah. to an actor breaking the leg line of the stage. Hmm. But cool. I like that Elizabethan yeah, one. That one. Well, if you want more great information like that, you can find us at historiesandmysteries.ca. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Histories and Mysteries. Oh, and if you would like to rate and review us, we would really, really appreciate it because it helps us get out there. Yeah. Well, we look forward to bringing you two new stories next week. Bye. Bye.